Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Okay. So welcome again tonight to The Times. They are a changing. We're on session five. And so I just want to kind of recap the things we've been talking about uh, the past four or five weeks. So we've been talking about truths that are under attack today, not only by the secular culture, but also by progressive Christians. Uh, Truth number one is that God is the sovereign Lord and creator of all things, that he's, he's control of all things. He's our creator. We're accountable to him. Number two, we talked about the Bible being God's word. It's absolutely true. And then the third thing we talked about was Jesus being the only way of salvation, not just a good way, uh, but the only way. And then last week we talked about hell, the reality of hell, the reality of the cross. We talked about sin. And so today we are going to talk about the issue of gender, human sexuality, and what our culture and even what progressive Christians um, are, are believing about that. And so I want to, we're not going to get, it's going to take me a long time to get to the Bible tonight, okay? Because I want to set a, I want to talk about things that are currently happening. Then I want to talk about how we got here historically. And then we're going to talk about what the Bible says. But I want to kind of lay a groundwork for, for where we're at. So there's been some watershed events that have happened in the past, let's say, five or six years that have really launched us on a trajectory of confusion in our culture uh, regarding human sexuality. Um, Back in 2015, there was the transgender phenomenon of of Bruce Jenner. Now, I may get in trouble for saying this, but I call him Bruce Jenner because he is technically a biological male, even though he identifies as Caitlyn Jenner. But he posed on the cover of Vanity Fair magazine in 2015 uh, with the title, Call Me Caitlin. And from that moment when an Olympic gold medalist transgendered or transitioned, it brought this into the forefront of our culture, um, where it's just all over the place. It's taken our nation by storm. Uh, There's a book written for four-year-olds called The Gender Fairy. And this is what it states in the Gender Fairy book. Only you know whether you're a boy or a girl. No one can tell you. No one can tell you whether you're a boy or a girl. Only you can do that. Now, think about the concept. Let's say we sat down with somebody 150 years ago. And I sat down with somebody 150 years ago, and I said to them, I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body. Back then, they would have treated me for a mental illness because of, it was something in my mind. With the proliferation of technology, technology, hormone therapy, surgeries, all of these types of things, we are now at a point where we can pretty much do whatever we want to do with the human body. Uh, back in the fall, President, now President Biden, back then candidate Biden, was at a town hall interview. I don't know if you remember this. And there was questions from the audience, and a mother of an eight-year-old transgender girl cited several of Trump's, Trump administration's anti-transgender policies 
including the ban on trans people serving openly in the military, asked Biden the question how he would protect the lives and the rights of LGBTQ people. And here's what Biden said. I will flat out just change the law, eliminate those executive orders. There should be zero discrimination. And the whole issue was, in our president and vice president's worldview, an eight-year-old should have the right to be whatever they want to be. So, the whole transgender confusion that's going on in our culture that kind of was launched by the whole Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner phenomenon. Okay, the second issue that's happened maybe over the past more like 10, 12, 15 years. Former evangelicals who have now embraced same-sex marriage and affirming all homosexual relationships have gone full bore on the LGBTQ. Who needs more handouts? What? No, I I recopied it so I could have it on extra pages. Okay. So I'm going to... (laughs) She's ducking so she's not on the camera. I'm... I'm going to name drop, like I said, because I think it's important for you to understand these names. Um, so these are, these are evangelicals. People, we would say, are Bible-believing Christians who at one point believed the way we do, but now have shifted their view and have become affirming, accepting, celebrating of the whole homosexual agenda, gay marriage. Matthew Vines is a very important person uh, that you need to know about. Um, He is the founder and executive director of the Reformation Project, and he came out with a very um, famous book called God and the Gay Christian, The Biblical Case in Support of Same-Sex Relationships. So he went and did a lot of study and came up with the conclusion that the Bible's okay with homosexual relationships. He preached a sermon at his home church in Topeka, Kansas. He is now on the front runner of basically the one arguing for a biblical case for gay marriage and those types of things. And so basically his Reformation Project is a pro-LGBTQ-based Christian nonprofit organization that basically helps pastors lead their churches to embrace the gay agenda. Matthew Vines. He's very, very influential because he wrote a book, The Biblical Case. This is not a secular person. This is a person using the Bible to support his views. Okay. Another name is a person named Dr. David Gushy. Dr. David Gushy was a former professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, the seminary I got my doctorate from. Then he went on for many years at Union Seminary, or or Union um, University, which is a Southern Baptist University, from 1996 to 2007. So he was one of the leading ethicists among Southern Baptists among our tribe. Then, a few years ago, he basically said, we got our theology wrong, And now he identifies as a progressive Christian. He's denounced all of the things he taught before, and he believes that the Bible is okay with gay gay marriage and things like that. So David Gushy was a seminary professor that a lot of Southern Baptist pastors sat under who's now said we got our theology wrong. So that's more academia. Jen Hatmaker, I I mentioned her a couple weeks ago, She is an author of women's books. She had an HGTV show, My Big Family Renovation, um, in 2016. 
she came out in favor of gay marriage, and she was on an interview, and they asked her, can a gay marriage be holy before God? And she says, oh, yes, a gay marriage can be holy. It's a holy expression of love before God. And so now she's a supporter of Black Lives Matter, and she is a progressive Christian, and Lifeway Christian Bookstores, which is, again, our, our bookstore chain, pulled all of her books because of her stance on, on that. So, again, a former evangelical Christian who basically says we got it wrong now they're embracing these things. Okay. The one that saddens me is Joshua Harris. Um, I've known about Josh Harris all the way back in the late 90s because when I was a youth pastor in the late 90s, he wrote an influential book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Have you ever heard that one? It was on courtship. It was big in the late 90s, early 2000s when I was a youth pastor. He became a pastor of a megachurch in Maryland. He spoke at a lot of the conferences that I went to especially in reform circles. He was a big-time speaker. He had a lot of young people coming to his um, conferences. I mean, he was kind of like the poster child for... He was like the poster child for the up-and-coming, kind of like the next John Piper-ish, the next type of, of leader. Well, in 2019, he came out as an atheist and said, what I believed was wrong. He pastored a church. He said, what I believe is wrong and... I'm now in favor of gay marriage, and he basically divorced his wife. I'm not saying he's gay, but here's what he said. He wrote this on Instagram. He says, I regret standing against marriage equality for not affirming you and your place in the church and for any ways that my writing and speaking contributed to a culture of exclusion and bigotry. I hope you can forgive me. What? I said, no, that's what he said. No, he's talking to gay people. Okay, okay. Sorry, I, I'm, not, I'm trying to understand what you're saying, Jerry. Okay, so the second big issue is former evangelical Bible-believing Christians who have either come out as atheists and said, I've denied what I believed, I got it wrong, I've evolved, I'm, I'm now, you know, I'm in a better place of understanding human sexuality. Okay. The third issue, and this is where it gets dicey, conservative evangelicals who are making confusing statements about human sexuality and gender. So these are people that we would consider to be solid. They're not heretics. They're Christians. They're leaders. But what they've said is confusing. And I'm going to pick on somebody, and it may get me in trouble. The president of our Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer. He's been the president for the past two years He's pastor of a large church in North Carolina. He quoted Jen Wilkin. I don't know if you know who Jen Wilkin is. She's also an author. They're solid people, but this is what he said, that, which makes it confusing. In a sermon that he was preaching on Romans chapter 1, which we'll look at later on, um, he said this. He said, we ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about, and we ought to shout about what it shouts about. And the Bible appears more to whisper when it comes to sexual sin compared to its shouts about materialism and religious pride. Now, that's not heretical, but it's confusing. What's he saying? So let me just ask you a question. Does the Bible, quote-unquote, whisper about sexual sin? Okay. Does the Bible talk about pride? Does the Bible talk about materialism? Does the Bible talk about sexual sin? Okay. Is the Bible clear? Okay. So, 
Here's, I hope, I don't want to look into his motives of why he's doing this. Here's what I think the motive is right now. Okay, this is where, this is where I think good-hearted people are at. Solid, evangelical, good-hearted pastors and leaders want to reach the culture. They want to reach non-believers. And they don't want to come across as jerks. They don't want to come across as unoffensive. They want to make friends with the culture. And that's admirable. We want to see people get saved. But let me just remind you. Is the Bible a friendly book? Okay. Is, can't, if you're going to stand on the Bible, are you always going to make friends with the culture? No. You're going to cut against the culture. And so it's confusing statements like the Bible whispers about sexual sin. Because if you take that to its full conclusion, then you can kind of say, well, those sexual sins aren't that big of a deal because the Bible's kind of silent. What's the difference between whisper and silent? You see the slippery slope there? Okay. The other thing is the Revoice Conference. I talked about this a few weeks ago. This is more in the Presbyterian Church um, of America, which is another conservative evangelical denomination that's very similar to ours. And... um, the whole issue with this is that the pastor of the church that put on this conference at Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis back in 2018, the pastor, Greg Johnson, identifies as a gay Christian. He uses that terminology, I'm a gay Christian. Now he chooses to be celibate, okay, and we'll talk about that later on. But the whole question is, should you put the moniker gay before Christian, or is that confusing? And so there's um, this whole issue of I have same-sex attraction. I don't act out on it, but my identity is that of a gay man. I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about him. (laughs) Okay. Greg Johnson would say, I have same-sex attraction. I don't act out on it. I'm remaining celibate. I'm not married to another man but my identity is that of I'm going to call myself a gay Christian. So if somebody comes to my church, I'm going to say I'm a gay Christian. So, so how do you deal with language like that? So issue number one is the whole transgender confusion with the whole Caitlyn Jenner phenomenon. Number two is former evangelicals that have abandoned the faith and have come out in favor of the gay, gay marriage and gay agenda. Number three is current evangelical solid people making confusing statements that haven't helped. And then the fourth issue, the passing of grand sweeping legislation. Systemic grand sweeping legislation. Back in June of 2015, you all know the Supreme Court uh, ruled on Obergefell and Hodges. Uh, Basically, it made gay marriage legal in all 50 states across the land. Okay, so once... Gay marriage was legalized, codified, embedded into Christian or embedded into the nation's legislation, the, the, the law. Things happened real fast. Think about how long it took for the gay rights movement to work in America. Think about how long it's taken since 2015 for the whole transgender movement to gain traction. Not that long. Three to four to five years. Now, back in May of 2019, the House of Representatives passed the Equality Act. It was not passed in the Senate. 
now that the Senate has a 50-50 split with Kamala Harris being the tiebreaker, I think that there's going to be the passing or potential bringing up of the Equality Act very shortly. Um, What is the Equality Act? It basically denies freedom of religion to churches and religious schools or colleges based upon our biblical understanding of gender and human sexuality. Let me give you the actual wording of the bill. This was, this was the wording of the bill as it has passed in the House. Now, they may reword it when it goes before the Senate, but currently the House bill's wording is this. Okay? The bill prohibits the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 from providing a claim, defense, or basis for challenging such protections. The bill prohibits an individual from being denied access to a shared facility, including a restroom, a locker room, and a dressing room that is in accordance with the individual's gender identity. Okay, okay here's the issue. If you are a church or a Christian organization, you cannot, under this law, claim religious exemption and say that we have a religious exemption based upon the First Amendment to say we're not going to do that. It says you can't do that. So basically what the Equality Act is basically doing is it's going in and saying your First Amendment rights to freedom of religion are being unhinged upon because you can't, as if you're a Christian school and you basically have a stance on the whole issue of biblical sexuality, you can't say, well, we're basing our decision not to abide by that on the First Amendment. It's going to force you to do it. And it could possibly do this. Let's say we have a public meeting here at our church. Let's say we open up the church for a VBS carnival this summer and the Equality Act passes and somebody comes into our building. Technically, legally, they could use whatever restroom they wanted to use. If they perceive themselves to be a man or a woman, they'd have to go into whatever restroom they wanted to do. We, we couldn't tell them you have to go, if you're a man, you have to go in the man's restroom. If you're a woman, you have to go in the woman's restroom. Those types of things. And then there could be fines for pastors or people that speak out against homosexual practice or transgender and things like that with fines. So that is coming, possibly. Okay, so... Those are some hot-button issues that are happening right now that are kind of coming together as a vortex in the world in which we live. Okay. So what is the truth that's under attack? Okay, here's the truth. Okay. The fifth truth. We're looking at these, these truths. We're on truth number five tonight. Here it is. God's written word remains the eternal and righteous standard which defines the issues of marriage, gender, and human sexuality. God's written word remains the eternal and righteous and final standard which defines all of these issues. How is this under attack? What's the attack today? We've evolved over time to see that the Bible is outdated on these issues and we must be open, affirming, and accepting on how people express their gender, marriage, and sexuality. We need to evolve. We need to be a little bit more understanding. That's not really what the Bible meant. So let's ask the question, how did we get here in America? So I'm going to take us on a little history journey. So tonight's going to be a little bit of history, but I think it's important for you to understand how this has taken hundreds of years to get to, okay? So Frederick, or we can call him Friedrich Nietzsche, if you want to call him by his 
Friedrich Nietzsche, for those of us that don't speak German, was a philosopher back in the late 1800s who basically was famous for the philosophy that God is dead, there should be no objective truth, and basically argued that Christianity is repressive and needs to give way to unlimited freedom. So, so starting, I was telling Don the other day, a lot of wicked things have come out of Germany. I'm not against Germany, but a lot of wicked things have come out of Germany. A lot of good things, like Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, but there's some strange things that have come out of Germany and Austria and kind of in that central Europe. So basically, here's a movement that's coming afoot in... Okay, so think about all the things that are coming together in the mid to late 1800s. Who else... I didn't put this in here, but who else came out with the major book that has catapulted the culture, and science, and history. Anybody know what was written in the late, mid to late 1800s? Charles Darwin, The Origin of the Species. Okay, so you got Charles Darwin, Origin of the Species. You got Friedrich Nietzsche, God is Dead, Christianity is Repressive. And then also in Austria, during this time, you have Sigmund Freud. Siggy. Sigmund Freud, if you ever watched Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and they call him Siggy. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. It's funny. Sigmund Freud. Okay, the, the psychoanalyst, the, the, the famous um, psychologist, psychiatrist. And his big issue was that we should not have any guilty feelings. If you have any guilty feelings, those feelings need to be dealt with because you're repressing those feelings. And he was very big on children should be able to express their sexuality at an early age without any Christian boundaries. Okay, so do you see the theme here? Nietzsche. Christianity's repressive. Freud, Christianity's repressive. How do you get rid of the repressive repression? Let them have the freedom to experience and express their sexuality. Okay, in America, Alfred Kinsey. This is kind of in the, the, the early part of the, the, the 20th century. The Kinsey Report. He published the famous Kinsey Report. The first was on male behavior. It came out in 1948. The second one was on female behavior. It came out in 1953. There's a lot of problems with his data if you go back and look at it. But basically what he did, he basically opened the door in America to normalize homosexual behavior. I think in the Kinsey Report, he basically argued that 10% of the male population at that time, he said, was, was homosexual. There's been a lot of debate about that. He also said that pornography should be normalized, and he also basically gave room to um, the sexual revolution. Now, 1953. I don't have the exact date, but around that time, maybe two or three years later, what came out in America that changed history as far as sexual ethics? The publication of Playboy magazine. Hugh Hefner, I think Playboy, I don't know the exact date, I don't have it in my notes, but I think it's in the mid-50s. So around the mid-50s, you've got the Kinsey Report, you've got Playboy, and you've got all of these things coming together um, right kind of leading up to the 1960s, which was the sexual revolution. Okay, so that's kind of a trajectory of psychology and um, sexual ethics. Let's talk about Karl Marx because it, it all comes together because I'm going to talk about Marxism, cultural Marxism, identity politics, um, inner, um, critical theory, all these types of things. And these, these terms may not mean anything to you tonight and I'll explain them to you. So Karl Marx, um, born 1818, died 1883. Obviously, 
you know, wrote the Communist Manifesto. He basically, he demanded the end of private property. Private property is bad. You need to redistribute wealth to alleviate poverty. And so he was rapidly against capitalism, and he viewed religion as the opiate of the masses. Basically, he popularized an atheistic worldview in Europe. So what's happening here with Marx and Nietzsche and Darwin and a lot of these philosophies and worldviews that are coming out of Europe, they're basically saying, we're taking God out of the equation. Christianity's repressive. We need to have people be liberated to be able to express themselves. Now, here's something you need to know about Karl Marx. Because he was anti-capitalist, he said that the biggest impediment to having a redistribution of wealth or socialism, do you know what the biggest impediment was to that? What, what, what slowed it down that needed to be get rid, gotten rid of? The nuclear family. He argued that nuclear families with a, father, with a father and mother married for a lifetime with kids, that bred inequality because they were intact. And because they were intact, they had more resources, they had more privilege, they, um, it led to oppression. So if there is to be equality of outcome, where everybody has equality of outcome, nuclear families needed to be eliminated to level the playing field because a single mom doesn't have the same chance as an intact family. So then instead of having everybody aspire to an intact family, let's get rid of the nuclear family and, and just have everybody you know, kind of dismantled there. Now, Frederick Engels co-wrote the Communist Manifesto alongside with Marx. He argued that women are oppressed in traditional families and they need to break free of these constraints by joining the workforce. Okay. So he was kind of the beginning of the whole women's lib thing. I'm not, against, I'm not against women working outside the home. That's not my argument here. But what his argument was back in the 1800s was this. If you broke up the nuclear family and you got the mom outside of the home in the workforce, that would force the children to be in state-sponsored schools so they could be indoctrinated to communism and socialism, and then the nuclear family would be broken up, and that these children would be able to express themselves. Okay, so you have all of these issues coming together. Psychology, sociology, economics and capitalism, sexual revolution, all coming out of Europe in the 1800s hits America in the 1900s. And so Karl Marx's theory came to a head in Germany in what's called the Frankfurt School. It birthed cultural Marxism, which is a little bit different than capitalism. I'll talk about cultural Marxism here in a moment. It's based upon Marxism, these guys from the Frankfurt School eventually moved to New York City and became teachers and faculty at Columbia University. And so cultural Marxism got embedded right in the center of New York City in the education system. 
And one of the key leaders of this was a man, he was an Italian man named Antonio Gromsky. Gromsky was born in 1891, lived to 1937. So Gromsky argued that institutions like the nuclear family and the church oppressed people who needed to be set free. He held to what is called a theory of cultural hegemony. Now, cultural hegemony, it's kind of a technical word in cultural Marxism. Hegemony comes from the Greek word to mean ruler. So hegemony means there's a ruling class. Okay? Basically, he's arguing that those who are in power, those who are the hegemony, those who are the ruling class, they keep that power by enforcing their norms and values, such as traditional Christian morality, on the masses. And so these power structures must be overthrown so there's equity for those in the victim class. So what cultural Marxism does is it basically does not treat people as individuals but more as classes. There's an oppressor class, there's a victim class. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. Herbert Marcuse is basically the father of the modern progressive cultural Marxist movement. He was the one who basically instigated the sexual revolution in the 1960s across college campuses in America. Um, basically, he brought, together the he brought together the theories of Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud together and basically influenced all those college students in the 60s, the free love, the sexual revolution that kind of erupted the Woodstock type stuff. He was kind of the father of all that. Now, he said people need freedom from repressive institutions such as the nuclear family, traditional Christianity. He called for ultimate freedom and ushered in the sexual revolution where anything goes. He's the father of critical theory. Okay, So I want you to notice the two things that these leaders have been saying since the 1800s. We've got to get rid of God and we've got to get rid of the nuclear family. And they haven't stopped. So when you see these attacks happening in our culture, they're going straight for the family. Because if they can disassemble the family, which is the smallest building block of culture, they can win the battle. And if they can take God out of the equation, they've won. So it's an attack on God and it's an attack on the nuclear family. And this goes all the way back to the 1800s. So this has been happening for almost 200, over 200 years of these philosophies gaining ground in Europe, moving to America, and now this is just the water we swim in. It's entrenched. It's embedded in American culture. Now, I want to talk about intersectionality and identity politics. Um, are you guys familiar with the term intersectionality or identity politics? Let me kind of explain that. Um, this is a view, this is part of critical theory, so this whole cultural Marxism critical theory, it's a view that historically in America, at least, let's just leave it in America, there's been a hegemony. Again, there's been a ruling class. So historically, since America's beginning, there's been a ruling class of the privileged. Okay, who have been the privileged oppressors all these years? People that look like me. And I mean that literally. A white, educated, heterosexual, Judeo-Christian male. White, Christian, heterosexual males 
have dominated culture for 250 years. They have oppressed other groups. And those at the bottom of the power structure are the oppressed victims. So historically, people of color, people that are disabled, LGBTQ. So intersectionality is the view that as many boxes as you can tick off in the, in the victim class, the greater your victimhood. So for example, if you are a white, heterosexual, Christian male, just by virtue, nothing about you individually, but because you fit that class, you're automatically guilty of privilege, you're automatically guilty of oppression, you're, you're just basically systemically bad. But... If you are an African-American, lesbian, disabled person, that gives you greater points in culture because you've been victimized. And so intersectionality is bringing all these different groups together to bring your identity. So it's no longer you're an individual. It's you're identified by whatever group you are in. So cultural Marxism or critical theory states that the greatest human problem is oppression by white heterosexual males, Christian, who have historically been in power and have subjugated women, people of color, and LGBTQ. So what's the solution to this problem? If the problem is there's a power class of white Christian men, what's the answer to get rid of them? Is it incremental change through electing the right politicians so it happens slowly over time? No. The oppressive class needs to be totally destroyed by burning down all existing structures down to the ground, which are systemically racist or oppressive in order to redistribute wealth, influence, and power to the victim class. Now, how does this come about? The cultural Marxist, the critical theorist, must infiltrate and change every facet of society. Down to the judges at the court level, the professors in academia, the pastors in the pulpit, the politicians that make the laws, the media, entertainment, social media, and most importantly, the public education system. So ultimately, the only way systemic oppression can be overthrown is through a revolution. So the oppressed class needs to be canceled, overthrown, or called out. There's no wiggle room for oppressors to repent or to be innocent. So the oppressor class, by its very nature, automatically is guilty of privilege. They must be canceled, censored, or shamed, not because of individual sins, but by mere identification with the group. Okay. In the past, or a biblical view of it, you commit an individual sin, you're responsible for that individual sin, you ask forgiveness for that sin, and you repent of that sin. Now, according to this view, you're guilty whether you've committed an individual sin by virtue of what group you're in. 
just by existing. So the only way that you can atone for your sins is to become woke. That's the term they're using now. You need to join the clause. You need to overthrow the power structures. You need to affirm or join in with the victim class. So your primary moral duty is to stand in solidarity with the victim class by protecting, defending, and accepting everything they do. So, if you disagree with gay marriage, or you disagree with the transgender movement, or you disagree with abortion, or you disagree with anything that the Bible speaks about, you will be canceled or labeled as a bigot, hateful, or even dangerous. You must be silenced, you must not be allowed to speak, and you must not only accept these views, but you must celebrate them. And if you don't, you must go through sensitivity training, reprogramming, indoctrination, and other educational activities to get on board with this new worldview. Any dissent or disagreement brings shame, cancellation, and censorship to your free speech and freedom of religion. Victimhood becomes the highest moral virtue along with the idol of self-expression. Now, I know this is a lot of cultural information and we're not getting into the Bible, but I want you to be aware of what the language is being used by the world right now. Okay. The language is changing from equality to equity. Okay, what's the difference? Historically, in America, and even by the Bible, equality means that all humans have dignity as created in the image of God. Everyone has the inherent or inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We see this in the Declaration of, of Independence, where all men are created equal. We see this in the 14th Amendment, that all people are equal protection under the laws. So traditionally speaking... The word equality means that the government exists to protect those inalienable rights as well as to make sure those, that nobody infringes or violates those rights. Okay, so here's the thing. I've said this before. The government does not give you these rights. God gives you these rights. It's the government's job to protect those. Okay? In the new cultural Marxism intersectionality critical theory, the government's the one that gives you the rights. And they can determine what is right and wrong, and you better get on board. Whereas the traditional view is all men are created equal by their creator, and they're endowed with certain inalienable rights. Among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, equity, on the other hand, not equality, but equity, means that each group should receive the same outcome as every other group. Everybody should have the same outcome. So everybody should be the same. And if somebody excels and does well, you need to take away from them and give to those that aren't so that the outcome is the same for everybody. So let me give you an example. I'm never going to dunk like LeBron James or Michael Jordan. Now, all men are created equal. I can go try out for the Bulls or I can go try out for the Lakers and I can try out. And I can go in the layup line and do a layup. 
but I have limitations. I'm never going to get to be like those basketball players or football players or athletes because some people are just created with more talent and they're taller and they're faster. Okay? So, in the equity view, we need to bring everybody down so that everybody gets a trophy. You know, that's the kind of culture everybody gets a trophy. Because we, have, we can't have anybody excelling. There's got to be a quality of outcome. And if somebody does really well, you take away from them and you redistribute that wealth and resources to others that don't have it so that everybody has the same thing. That's socialism. Okay. Equity is just another word for socialism. It's an infringement upon the God-given rights. Now, let's talk about morality. Because nowadays, when people say something's immoral or something's moral, they mean something totally different than what we mean as Christians. So what is morality in this world of intersectionality, critical theory, and cultural Marxism? What is, what is morality and what's, what's moral and what's immoral? Okay. It is immoral, immoral to say that marriage is between one man and one woman because that's oppressive, that's bigoted, that's hateful. It's immoral to say that. You cannot say marriage is between one man and one woman. That's immoral. It's immoral to say that there are only two genders, male and female. That's immoral. You can't say that. It's immoral to say that sex outside of marriage is sinful. You have no right to say that. That's immoral. But it is the height of morality. It's the greatest thing to affirm and celebrate any and all forms of sexual behavior because it allows people to be free and be who they want to be. Now, but that is a long introduction. You guys ready to get to the Bible? So I'm going to do three things tonight. Three questions. Number one, what does the Bible say about this issue? Number two, what are the objections that people have to the Bible? And number three, how should we respond? Okay, so... The Bible speaks. Let's just go right to the very beginning. So let's go to Genesis 1.27. And I know this is rudimentary and fundamental, but we've got to start with where God starts because God's standard, God's created order, how God did it. This goes back to truth number one, that the sovereign Lord is creator and ruler of all things. He created all things. He governs the universe. He sets the rules. He sets the laws. He sets how things are to be. So Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This should not be under dispute. Who's the creator? God. How did he create? Male and female. God created. Okay? Now, when God created male and female, what did he do with those two, Adam and Eve, that he created? Let's go into Genesis chapter 2. Start in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man... And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, I want you to stop right there. Who was created first? The man. The woman was created out of the man. But I want you to notice something at the end of verse 22. God brought her to the man. Okay, here's the thing about Eve that no, no other woman has ever had. Most women at their wedding, who walks them down the aisle? Their dad, their, their brother. God walked Eve down the aisle and brought her to Adam. 
<laughs> kind of picture it that way. God brought Eve to Adam. Now, how did Adam respond when he sees this? Not a monkey, not a giraffe, not a chihuahua. What does he do? It says this, verse 23. The man said, this at last. In Hebrew, aha, awesome. That's really what it was. At last, woo-hoo. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and they were not ashamed. Okay, so God is the creator. God created the male and female. God performed the first marriage. From the very beginning, God set up in his universe, in his world, how things are supposed to be. So God's plan from the very beginning, is that marriage would be a lifelong covenant union between one man and one woman. Anything outside the bounds of one man and one woman in a binding covenant of marriage is not biblical, nor is it right. But yet, what I just said is considered hateful. But what have I just done? I've read the first two pages of the Bible where God defines the terms. Now, we know what happened with Adam and Eve. They brought sin into the world. Okay, so we have to wrestle with that. Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's talking about Adam, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Let's, let's level the playing field here, okay? Because I do not want to come across tonight as one who's picking on a particular sin and not being honest with the fact that all of us are born sinners. Okay, so we're going to level the playing field tonight and say that because Adam and Eve sinned, because Adam sinned and brought sin into the world, we talked about this last week, every single one of us is born sinful. We're born corrupt. If not for the grace of God, you and I could do a whole lot worse than what we've done. Because there's the, the desire in there to act out upon it. We may not ever act out upon it, but there's that desire. So all of us are in need of grace. All of us are sinners. All of us have fallen short. Okay, We're born with a sin nature. But we need to be very careful. Just because we're born with a sin nature, God does not lower his standards of behavior. I've heard some people say, I'm just born that way. I can't help it, I'm born that way. Okay, let's just say, for instance, it was scientifically discovered that there's an alcohol gene or an adultery gene or even a homosexual gene that causes a person to be born that way does it still make the behavior right? I got drunk. I killed somebody. You go before the judge. Well, I'm just born that way. I had an alcohol gene. Yeah, but you still got drunk and killed somebody. So you and I were born fallen. And here's the point. Every single person is going to struggle with some type of sin. For some, it is homosexual sin. 
For some, it is gender dysphoria where they're confused. For some, it is alcoholism. For some, it could be gossip. For some, it could be anger. For some, it could be pornography. For some, it could be um, cussing. I mean, every single person is born with some type of struggle. So we're all sinners in need of grace. But the point is, God never lowers his bar on what he says is, is, is required just because we're born sinful. Okay, his standard's still, still there. Now, the Old Testament says in Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. I don't have time to go into that word abomination, the Hebrew word. But it definitely means something that is grievous, horrendous, corrupt, flagrantly against God's plan. It's an abomination, something that God hates, something that God does not approve of. So what I want to do tonight is I want to take us to three New Testament passages that teach on the issue of homosexuality. What does the Bible say? Because remember, Matthew Vines wrote a book, The Bible and Homosexuality, and he's made a case saying it's okay. So what does the Bible say? So let's, let's turn to Romans chapter 1. And I hope that you understand that the, when we read this, the Bible does not whisper, okay, about this. Especially when verse 18 says the wrath of God's being revealed from heaven. I don't think that's a whisper when it talks about God's wrath being revealed. Okay. So let's turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. I'm going to just talk about a few things that this passage teaches. First of all, I want you to notice that it addresses both male and female homosexual conduct. Gay male as well as lesbian behavior. Second, and this is the big thing in this passage of Scripture, in verse 26, the reason that homosexual conduct and passions are prohibited is because Paul calls it in verse 26, contrary to nature. Contrary to nature. Now, what is natural versus unnatural? Okay, what is, what is Paul saying here when he says homosexual desire, homosexual relationship is contrary, it's against nature? Why would he say that? 
What did God do when he created Adam and Eve from the very beginning? He established by created order, by the nature of how things are, the way humans are to relate to one another sexually. Now, what Matthew Vines and others that are not buying this passage would say, they'll say that when Paul uses natural and unnatural, he means that a person is acting in a way against their innate sexual preference. So let me just say it the way they would say it. If you're heterosexual and you engage in homosexual acts, that's against your nature. But if you're born a homosexual, you're not acting out against nature because you're doing what you were born to do. So the homosexual behavior is not unnatural. That's just the way you were born. You understand what they're saying? So that they're saying, if you're a straight guy and you have a gay relationship, that's against nature because you're born straight. But if you're born gay and you act out upon that, that's natural because that's the way you were born. That's not what Paul's saying because there's some key words here that are also used. In verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. They exchanged. They exchanged. Verse 27, the men abandoned. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. They were consumed with passion, literally to, to burn. He calls these acts shameless. So Paul deals with passions, desires, and actions. And how does he describe the homosexual behavior and actions here? How does he describe it? He calls it impure. He calls it dishonorable passions, contrary to nature, and shameless acts. Okay, so let me just ask you, is the Bible whispering here about homosexual conduct or behavior? Seems pretty clear what Paul is saying. Now, he says there in verse... Um, where are we here? Yeah, in verse, uh, at the end of verse uh, 27, they received in themselves the due penalty for their error. He calls it an error and a penalty. What's the penalty for their error? Well, there's two, two ways you can look at this. Some scholars think it could be the sexual perversion itself as the punishment. Um, I think it's speaking of eternal punishment on that final day. Either way. Paul calls it impure, dishonorable, contrary to nature, shameless, and an error, worthy of punishment. Okay. Then in verse 32, after he lists you know, homosexuality, he lists all these other things that are kind of basically against the Ten Commandments, he gets down to verse 32 and he addresses two issues here. First, those who practice such things deserve to die. Practice. The word practice is in the present active tense in the Greek, which means a lifestyle. In other words, if you, I'm going to be very clear here, if you live in an unrepentant lifestyle 
of homosexual behavior and activity, that is shameful and it is under God's wrath. Because if you go back up to verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness. Okay, so, the second one I think is the one that most Christians struggle with. Not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. I'm not gay, but it's okay that they do it. I'm not going to judge them. Those who give approval or condone homosexual practices along with these other sins are also committing a sin. So even if you don't engage in homosexual behavior by condoning it, you're committing a sin according to the Bible. That's where the rub is. Because in today's culture, I'm not going to be a homosexual. I'm not going to act out on it. But what they do behind closed doors, that's their business. I'm not going to call it out. I'm not going to condemn it. I'm not going to call it a sin. Um, you know, if, if they want to get married, you know, gay marriage, that's up to them. I, I'm, I'm going to be silent. I'm not going to say anything about it. What does the Bible say here? If you give approval to those who practice them, you're sinning to give your approval. All right. Let me stop because I feel like I've talked a lot. Are there any questions before we go on? Because we're going to look at two other verses that teach this issue. I just need to take a drink. All right, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. This is another. So this, I'm giving you the top three big ones in the New Testament. And of course, somebody's going to argue these are all from Paul. And Paul was a repressive Christian. And you know, we'll get to the objection here in a moment, which is Jesus didn't say anything about it. Uh, progressive Christians have problems with Paul anyway. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. All right. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, Paul, who are the unrighteous and what, what are you meaning here? They won't inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now let me just say that homosexuality is one sin listed among many there, so we don't want to just pick on that. But since we're talking about this issue tonight, um, we need to be very careful that we read what it says here. If you continue in these things in unrepentant sin... You'll not inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? You won't go to heaven. It'll prove out that you're not saved if you continue in these things. Now, the ESV uses the terminology men who practice homosexuality. There's actually two Greek words that are used there in the original language and I wanted to find them for you. And, I need, and we need to be technical tonight because the Bible's technical and we're all adults here. Okay? So the first Greek word used there is literally man coitus, man sex. 
sexual relationships between men. Men sleeping in the same bed together, it means sexual acts between two males, man coitus. That's the first word used there. There's a second Greek word used there, which means soft, referring to the passive or the effeminate partner who plays the role of the female or of the the softer, I don't even know what you want to call it, partner. So the ESV kind of cleans it up, men who practice homosexuality, but literally if you want to read the little text, it's men having sex together and those who are the softer, I don't even know what the terminology is, the effeminate one, yeah. So it takes both both parts there. Um, Now, it is consensual sex between two men it's talking about here. And by extension, I think if you go back to Romans, it could be two women. But literally, the word that's used there is man coitus, not woman coitus, but man, man sex. Okay. Now, some have argued that Paul here was referring to what was popular back in that Greek-Roman culture, a master-slave relationship. Um, it was called pederasty. A pederasty was where you would have adult males, like a slave owner or somebody in nobility, would have sex with younger boys. And basically what some would say is that's what Paul's calling out here. Paul's calling out abusive sexual relationships where, like Kevin Spacey, or whatever, like a, an older homosexual man's taking advantage of a younger sexual boy, and there's a predator. That's what Paul's calling out. He's calling out pederasty. Okay, here's the problem with that. There is a special Greek word for pederasty. And Paul could have used that if he wanted to. And he did not. He used mancoitus, soft partner. So what Paul is doing here is he's saying that the Bible condemns consensual sex acts between two males. But I want to be very careful that we minister the gospel here because I want you to notice verse 11. And such were some of you. Okay, in Corinth, Corinth had temple prostitutes that would go and there were male and female and homosexual temple prostitutes. As a matter of fact, if you lived in Corinth back in that day, it was almost like a a pejorative term, like... Corinth would be like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And it, the, the town was so notorious for its sexual immorality that if you, it had a nickname. If you were sexually promiscuous, you were called, you played the Corinthian. You were from Corinth automatically. And so out of that culture of homosexual behavior, Paul says, some of you have come out of that. Some of you have been saved from that. That's what you were. Notice what he says there. And such were some of you, but you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So here's what this passage teaches. Homosexual sin can be repented of. You can be delivered from it. God can save you out of that. You can repent from that. You can be washed. You can be delivered. And you can be set free from that. The flip side is if you continue in that, in unrepentant sin, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there is hope of forgiveness. There is hope that God can save you out of that because Paul says some of you were this. Some of you were homosexuals. 
but God saved you out of that. Let's look at one more passage of Scripture. Let's go to 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. Very similar to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, but he, he makes a little bit of a difference here. He's going through the Ten Commandments, basically, talking about lawlessness. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Okay, again, it's a list there that he gave back in 1 Corinthians. But notice again, he has men who practice homosexuality. It's the same word used back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, man coitus. A man who practices sexual intercourse with another man. But I want you to notice what Paul adds there at the end of verse 10. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine and not in accordance with the gospel. So, is homosexuality in accordance with the gospel and is it sound doctrine? No. Okay, so if we take these three passages together, Romans 1 the wrath of God is coming. It's shameful. It's dishonoring. It's an error. Um, it's unnatural. 1 Corinthians 6, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy 1, it's contrary to sound doctrine. So let's just let the Bible speak for itself and ask the question, has the Bible whispered on this issue or has it been clear? It's, it's been very clear. And so any Christian that would say gay marriage or homosexual activity or any of these types of things is okay, they're not taking the Scripture at face value for what it teaches. You just kind of have to be rebellious against it and outright deny what it says because it's very clear. Okay, now let's dive into another issue that's very new, and I'm not as versed in this because it's, it's a transgender issue. Um. 2007, a group of human rights activists... Okay, yes, Jeff, go ahead. Jesus didn't say anything about... We're going to get to that. We're going to get to objections, and that's one of the objections. So hold, hold that thought. You're thinking ahead. Hopefully we get to it. I'm sure, I'm sure we will. All right. So in 2007, there was a human rights group of activists that met in Yogyakarta, Indonesia. Uh, they drew up a series of demands. They came together and said, we want some demands. And these demands were drafted and they're known as the Yogyakarta Principles. And this, these principles have been adopted by the UN, okay, the UN, the European Union, I think Canada and other governments around the world that basically says we're going to just wholesale embrace transgender and queer theory into culture. And so they want it unlawful to hold to any Christian traditional values related to what we believe about the Bible. 
Um, so let's 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 talk about trans. Let's talk about definitions used by transgenders, okay? Because this gets confusing. Sex. This is the actual physical body parts. Your sex, genitals, chromosomes. Okay, that's the, kind of the traditional way we would understand. Like, there's a male sex, there's a female sex. Gender is a fairly new term in culture. Um, it's always been more your, bio- your biology. You're, you're, you're biologically, chromosomically, physically a male. Biologically, chromosomically, physically a female. Okay, gender identity. That is your own sense of self. That's who you in your head feel yourself to be. In other words, you could be a physical, biological, chromosomal male, but in your head and in your heart you feel like you're a female. That's your gender identity, and that's who you want to be, regardless of your biological sex. Now, that's, that's just kind of in your head how you perceive yourself to be. Now, there's gender expression. That's how you present yourself to others, by the way you dress, by the way you talk, by the way you act. And then there's attraction, who you're physically and romantically attracted to. Now, there are some false claims of gender theory. Binary is bad. Okay, what is binary? Binary means what? Two. What does the Bible say? God made them male and female. There are only two sexes, gender, whatever you want to call it. I tend to use the word sex because genders can be whatever you want it to be. There are only two biological, chromosomal, created beings, male, female. But that's, you can't say that. That's bad. Gender is a spectrum. Back in 2018, I don't know if you know this, but Facebook began offering 71 different options for gender. You know when you go fill out a form, male, female, other? <laughs> Facebook has 71 different ones you can identify as. Okay, 71. That's getting a little extreme. Okay, the concept of being a boy or a girl or a man or a woman, that's just a social construct. That's what society, especially Christian, biblical societies, has oppressively set upon you in culture that there's boys and there's girls, there's men and there's women. There's only two. And then they also say that everyone has a gender identity that may be separate from your sex. So all of you have a gender identity, you just don't know it yet. And it may, You may be a male biologically and you may be a male gender identity, but you may not be. And so you need to discover that. Okay, that's kind of the, the false claims of gender theory. Okay, let's look at their contradictions. There's some logical contradictions in this. Okay, let me ask you the question. L-G-B-T-Q. What does L stand for? Lesbian. L-G, what does G stand for? Okay, B, bisexual. T, transgender. Q, queer. Okay, so, okay, let me ask you a question. There's there's an internal illogic in that whole acronym. Because if you're lesbian and you're gay, what does that assume? You're a male. You're a male attracted to males. You're a female attracted to females. But transgender says you can't just say there's male and female. You understand what I'm saying? So if you say LGBTQ, you're self-defeating the L and the G by adding the T. Because according to transgenderism, there is no such thing as 
two. Does that make sense? So, so anyway, there's like a logical, yeah, it's, it's weird. Okay, so here's some contradictions. Gender theory holds that gender is independent of biological sex and yet expects that biological sex may be altered to fit the individual's subjective sense of gender. You understand what I'm saying? I can think in my head that I'm a woman, but I actually need to change my body to reflect that. Okay? Activists do not want gender dysphoria to be regarded as an illness, yet they also demand costly medical interventions paid for by the taxpayer. Gender theory celebrates each person's freedom to live out their gender identity, but if you want to detransition back to your original biological sex, this is disallowed. Those who regret their sex change and want to get back are shamed into silence. I can tell you some stories about people that went through, I've read, read these, people who went through transition, transgender, that either became a Christian, regretted it, got saved, and they went through the painful process of re-transitioning back to their original. So they started out as a woman. They became a man. They felt convicted, became a Christian. They transitioned back to a man. They have been silenced and shamed for going back because they reneged on who they really were. Um, and so there's some shaming and some silence. Silencing. Okay. Let's talk about some common objections to this whole issue. Okay. Common objections that you may hear. There's probably more, but for the sake of time tonight. Okay. Objection number one. What's the harm in two consenting adults choosing to live a homosexual lifestyle? They aren't hurting anybody. Why should we interfere? What happens behind closed doors is nobody's big business. Um, I've heard people say, you know, abortion's definitely bad because it's killing a baby in a womb, but but. Uh, you know, homosexuality is not hurting anybody. There's just two people consenting. You know, it's not a big deal. Why, why should we be so rigid about that? Okay. Let's just say this. We are not espousing an opinion. We are simply declaring what God's word says on the issue. So if we're to be faithful to the scriptures and stand before God on the day of judgment, we need to be honest with his word and hold fast to what it says. Because Paul said, if you, can, if you approve of these things, you're committing the sin. Now, that doesn't mean you're a jerk. That doesn't mean that you um, hate them, that you're bigoted. And we'll talk about that later. It just means that, in all honesty, if you're going to be honest with God and his word, you've got to call it out as a sin and not be afraid to do so. Okay, now, this is something that's touchy. I wrote the word, we cannot, I cannot, in good conscience, call homosexual marriage a true marriage. Because marriage has been defined by God as one man and one woman for a lifetime. The culture, Obergefell and Hodges calls it a marriage, but we can't call it marriage. So here's the terminology I use may not be nice, but it, I don't know of any other terminology, so-called gay marriage. If you put gay before marriage, you're nullifying the meaning of marriage because God doesn't define it that way. 
So if you're going to use the term gay marriage, you've already bought into what the culture is saying. You've already co-opted. You've already, you've already approved of and bought into the culture's definition of marriage. Um, so you may have to change your terminology um, of saying so-called gay marriage because it's not really... Now, they perceive it to be, but in God's eyes, it's not. All right, objection number two. It's hypocritical at best and hateful at worst to call out gays as sinning when you are also a sinner. It's the height of being judgmental and hypocritical. Why are you calling out the homosexuals when I know what you do on Friday night when nobody's watching? When you go to the bars and hang out, your, your sins are no different than these homosexual sins. You're being hypocritical. And yes, if you are being hypocritical, you're being hypocritical. Um, we talked about this a few weeks ago. This is Matthew's version of it. Matthew 7, 3-5. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. If you're quick to be judgmental and call out homosexual behavior, you better be careful that your lifestyle is not one that has a log coming out of it where you're doing something flagrant. Because in verse 5, once you take the log out, once you repent, once you're, once you're um, not sin-free, but once you've repented and humbled yourself before the Lord, notice what Jesus says in verse 5. You'll be able to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He doesn't say that we can just brush sin under the carpet, that we never need to address it, or how dare you confront my sin. No, he says if you are a humble, forgiven, repentant sinner whose lifestyle is consistent, you have every right to go take the speck out of your brother's eye. You can confront their sin in gentleness. Another thing we need to be very careful of as Christians is that we watch our language. We need to denounce all violence, and derogatory statements against homosexuals and transgender people. Offensive language. I'm not, obviously, I'm not going to say what they are here, but you know what some of those are. We need to be very careful that we don't advocate for violence or, or hateful speech or any type of things that would... There's still people created in the image of God that need salvation, and we need to love them, not accept or affirm what they're doing, but love them. Okay, now this gets to number three. This gets to Jeff. This gets to your, your statement. Um, Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality. An argument from silence means that Jesus condones it. Now, let me just show you, show you, the, show you the difference between Jesus and Paul. Jesus was living in Jerusalem, Caesarea Philippi, predominantly Jewish culture, where they had the Old Testament and it was pretty much culturally accepted that homosexuality was wrong. So a lot of times Jesus didn't have to address it because his audience were Jews that knew it was wrong. Paul, on the other hand, was going to these Greek cities, Corinth, Philippi, Ephesus, Thessalonica, all these different places where they had major um, homosexual issues, where it was commonplace. There were temple prostitutes. And so the reason Paul addressed it was because those people didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't know God's law. But even though Jesus doesn't explicitly mention homosexuality, he does mention sexual immorality. Mark 7, 21 through 23. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, 
sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Okay, Jesus uses the word sexual immorality, which is the, the Greek word porneia. Again, we, we get our word porn or pornography from porneia. And, and that word means any consensual intercourse between two persons who are not married to each other. Which, although Jesus doesn't come right out and use man coitus or the words that Paul does, his audience there in Israel would understand that sexual morality included any type of sex that was not confined to one man and one woman in a covenant relationship. And Jesus also hearkens back to God's original plan. In Matthew 19, 4-6, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Notice that Jesus goes all the way back to creation and says, From the beginning, God's original plan from the beginning was one man and one woman. So he doesn't speak, he doesn't necessarily use the word homosexuality, but he goes back and he addresses God's original plan for marriage being between one man and one woman. Okay, the, the other issue that's kind of become more popular now in evangelical circles is this. It's okay to have same-sex desire as long as you don't act out on them. That's more of a Roman Catholic view. The Roman Catholic view says the desire is not sin as long as you don't act out on it. Which, which would be, let's take, it to, let's take it out of homosexual practice and put it in heterosexual if I lust after a woman but yet don't commit adultery, that lust is not a sin until I act out on it. What some proponents are now saying is if you have same-sex attraction or you have desires for this person of the same sex or you have a desire to change your gender but you don't act out on it, that's not sin unless you act out on it. But the Bible teaches that impure and ungodly thoughts or desires arise in us even though we may never act out on them. I don't think we're going to finish because we've got a few moments here. Let's, um, for the sake of time, I'm just going to paraphrase. There's, there's these passages you guys can look at when you go home from Romans 6, from Romans 8, from Colossians 3, 1 Peter. It all talks about how we are to put to death or that there are internal sins of the heart that aren't necessarily sins that you act out on. So the Bible is very clear that you can have passions, you can have desires. They're just as sinful as the actual acting out upon them. So we don't make a distinction between the desire and acting out upon them. But it seems like it's creeping into a lot of um, the evangelical world today is you can have the desires, they're not sinful, as long as you don't act out on them. And what the Bible teaches is both the desires and the actions are sinful. And you need to deal with both. Okay. How should we respond to this unbiblical world regarding sexual morality and expression? Um, let's talk about those who claim to be Christians. Those who claim to be Christians that are dealing with this issue. Okay. There are two categories of saved people, and I think we need to respond in two different ways. The first category is a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction and identity issues, but has never acted out on them with another person and has not crossed the line of physical sin. Okay, there are those in our churches, Christians, who do have that internal struggle. 
They struggle with same-sex attraction. They struggle with their identity, but they've never crossed the line and like, gotten into a relationship with somebody else or done that. Um, you need to come alongside them and let them know, like I said earlier, both the desire and the action are sinful, and that even though you have those desires, those desires need to be killed, those desires need to be dealt with. You need to ask God to give you strength to overcome those desires so that you don't act out on them. We need to be willing to walk through that with people. Let it be a safe place for people to come share those hurts, come share those struggles. But we need to to not affirm them in that same-sex attraction, but to walk alongside them and say, it's awesome that you haven't acted out upon it, but still, the desire is still sinful too. And we need to repent. We need to work towards that. But there's a second category. I'm fearful this is becoming more the category among Christians, especially many that I know have grown up in this church. Not many, but a few. There are those who claim to be Christian, but yet have chosen homosexuality as their identity and have come out of the closet and are willfully living in open rebellion to God's command by engaging in homosexual conduct. If you are a Christian and you claim to be a Christian and you're living a homosexual lifestyle, that is sinful. You need to repent. You need to come back to the Lord because there's those warnings in 1 Corinthians that says you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You will not go to heaven. The wrath of God is upon you. You need to repent. You can't say I am a Christian and continue in unrepentant sin as your lifestyle. So I think we need to use some cautions in language. I don't think we should use the term gay Christian, even if it means same-sex attraction that's never acted upon, because the same-sex desire and the action are sinful and should not be used as an identifying label. 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Um, let me just move down here to the biblical teaching Anytime Christians experience sexual attraction whose fulfillment in action or behavior would be sin, they should recognize that attraction is something to be rejected and repented of. This is true for all believers, regardless of whether those attractions are to the same sex or the opposite sex. Does that make sense? If you have a desire that you know you're going to act out upon and it would lead to sin, that desire itself is sinful as well. It needs to be repented of, whether it is same sex or opposite sex. And we should not base our identity in our sexual identity. But as the book I wrote, we need to find our identity in the Trinity. And so if you want to know kind of the basis of the book I wrote, we're chosen, adopted, accepted by the Father, purchased, forgiven, righteous in the Son, regenerated, indwelt, and sanctified by the Spirit. And the most important part of our personhood is not found in sexual desire, our identity, or orientation, but rather in our identity in the Trinity. And of course, you got another passage of Scripture there. I'm sorry that we went so fast and I didn't get through all the notes, but I want to leave like three minutes for questions on such a deep topic. Two minutes for questions. Are there any? Man, I know there's probably tons, but we got two minutes. Any questions tonight? Dennis. What's different than it was in Sodom and Gomorrah? 
Well, if you go back to what I taught you, earl- what I said earlier about going all the way back to Nietzsche and all these different societal factors, there's been a wholesale effort by secular culture to indoctrinate the culture, starting in a very early age. When you have books for four-year-olds called The Gender Fairy, and when you start introducing gay characters into Disney movies, into children's television, and um, when the Equality Act comes out and parents are going to, I mean, schools are going to have to start teaching that, you've got a whole systemic indoctrination into the culture, which makes it very, very difficult to stand against it. Because to stand against it means to be shamed, to be silenced, to be maybe punished if you're a student in school to get a bad grade, to be sent to the principal's office if you disagree, you know, go to sensitivity training. A lot of different things are going to, you know. Yeah. Yeah, we, we are not in a majority at all. The biblical worldview is in the minority in culture, and it's seen as not only oppressive, but dangerous. And if you're viewed as oppressive and dangerous, then the way people treat you is going to be very different. So we need to be prepared for that. So there's two ways you can live. You can, you can live according to the Bible, or you can give in, which a lot of these former evangelicals have just said, you know, I'm just going to give in because I, I don't want to stand up. I don't want to pay the price. It's easier just to go with the flow. But here's what I say. This is what I end with. It may be easier to go with the flow, but on the day of judgment, who are you going to have to stand before? Stand before God on that day. Were you on God's side or were you on the culture's side? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we could talk a lot about this subject. So hopefully we didn't get turned off on Facebook. It's still, is it still streaming? Okay, good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, help us to... Um, it's a difficult subject, and it's, there's a lot of components. We need compassion. We need understanding. We need truth. Lord, we need courage. Uh, there's so much confusion. There's so much um, just years and years of things in our culture that have been like compounded to bring us to where we are today. And, it, and Lord, we are truly swimming against the tide. But, Lord, we want to be true to your scriptures, even if that means it costs us, or we, we, we need to be ready for that. So help us to be true to you. Help us to please you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.